please stop beeping. We can be friends. Just when I guessed you could not sink any lower, you're listening to the Rish Outcast. Well, you've kind of made your bed, haven't you? Hello folks, this is Rish Outfield, and this is the Rish Outcast. And uh, I am recording this episode during Plague Year 2020. Uh, I didn't do the echo effect or any of that stuff, it just seems kind of tacky. Especially if this gets worse and worse. Well, I mean tacky and the Rish Outcast. They're kissing cousins, aren't they? French, French kissing, kissing cousins. cousins! This is April. 2020 when I'm recording this and they are saying that this will be the, the worst week for the spread of the virus here locally at least although I, I believe they said that in New York as well and so this is the week you're supposed to be the most careful my mom made me a mask and there were people that complained that the masks were like stifling and uncomfortable to wear and they made people's skin break out stuff like that and I was just like boy listen to those whiners but I, I put this mask on today and it was like having somebody's hands over my nose and mouth and so I guess I have become what I most despise it's also allergy season April is usually the big allergy month for me and every time I sniffle every time I sneeze every time I rub my eyes, I think someone's going to see me, and I feel shame. In the same way as if I were scratching myself or picking my nose or, I don't know, a third thing, scratching myself somewhere else. So it's been a month. It's been a month since school was canceled, and almost a month since they closed the library, and I'm on the very last disc of the last audiobook that I checked out. Again. I wish that they had let us know, you know, we're going to close the library on Saturday or Monday or whatever, so that I could have run up there and grabbed three or four more. As it stood, I did all right. I've had more than a month's worth of entertainment, mostly because I'm so slow in consuming entertainment. And today I finished watching The Lady Vanishes by Alfred Hitchcock and... It was, uh, I want to say a 1939 movie. It might have been 38. It felt like it was right after his stretch of doing silent films because it starts out like a silent film. But there's so much dialogue, and the dialogue is so important. There's so many different languages spoken in the movie. It's really something that would not have worked in silent film. It, this all sprang from, I guess, toward the beginning of the year, Marshall Latham had contacted me, and he said... Um, Oh, I had mentioned to him 1917, that Sam Mendes movie that was done to make it look like it was all one take. And of course, I couldn't help but think of Rope, Alfred Hitchcock's 1950, geez, 56 movie. I'm not really sure when Rope was. That was its gimmick. That was, it was famously done. It was a play. And Hitchcock, for years, had gotten it into his head. He wanted to shoot a movie like a play, where it was all one, like, continuous performance. But you couldn't do that because a reel of film was 10 minutes of film. And, and you know, how do you make a movie like that? Uh, we did an episode of Outfield Excursions about Rope. But I, in watching it, there was a documentary that made reference to other Hitchcock movies. And so I thought, oh, I'm going to rent a bunch of the ones that I haven't seen. I'm also going to rent a couple that I have seen, like Vertigo and Rear Window. But it's been a while since I saw them. And, uh, oh my gosh, it was just great. I, I probably rented seven or eight Hitchcock films this year. And by rented, I mean just checked them out for free at the library. We are so spoiled in the 21st century, <laughs> you know, that it cost me nothing to get all of these movies. And yet, you know, when I was a kid to rent them on VHS, it would have been, I don't know, 30 plus dollars, right? So, so I rented Vertigo, Rope, Strangers on a Train, Rear Window, Under Capricorn, 
Shadow of a Doubt and The Lady Vanishes. And Lady Vanishes was the last one that I uh, had to watch. And I just finished it today. And it was superb. Oh my gosh, it was so good. And it kind of lit my imagination on fire. And I thought, I want to write a story that's similar to this, that's similar to The Lady Vanishes. And of course, I haven't done it. I just barely finished the movie half an hour ago or less. But I'm thinking about it. I'm thinking about possibilities. I'm thinking about similarities and differences. And, you know, a modern aesthetic, although the film felt pretty dang modern, even though it was set in pre-war Europe. I don't know. I don't know if it was pre-war or not. Because they never mention Germany. They never mention a war. So the lady vanishes. So it starts off in this, this inn. And a young woman, a young English woman meets a young English man. They have a meet cute where he is annoying her. She's trying to get some sleep. And so she gets him thrown out of his room and as recompense, he bursts into her room and crawls into bed with her. And he's like, well, I'll be sleeping here since I lost my room. And then ultimately she gets him his room back upstairs. She befriends this older lady, Mrs. Foy. And uh, the next day they're all going to be on the train together and a pot from a window drops and it looks like it's aiming for Mrs. Foy's head but it hits our gal instead and she's knocked out when she comes to she's on the train Mrs. Foy is looking after her there's all these strangers on the train she uh, like goes to the dining car and interacts with a couple of very colorful characters and then I guess she passes out again. And when she wakes up, Mrs. Foy is gone. And she asks the other people in her compartment where Foy has gone. And, and they act like either they don't speak English or they don't know what she's talking about. She retraces her steps and people deny ever seeing her with Mrs. Foy, with, with, another, with an older lady. It's really interesting you know, it's a conspiracy thing, right? Or is it something else? The fact that she was hit on the head, she was struck on the head, makes her an unreliable witness. And everybody thinks that she was imagining things or, you know, the she runs into this guy from the night before. And he's the only one that doesn't dismiss her. And the two of them sort of team up to get to the bottom of this mystery and they run into this surgeon in another town down the line on the train he's got a surgery all scheduled but he takes the time to explain that you know when you get a head injury you can't trust your memories you know maybe this mrs foy is an invention of yours or maybe you knew her in the past and and you just imagine that she was with you now kind of thing but the girl doesn't want to believe that she imagined it. She, there has to be another explanation. And the fun of it is, it's very similar to William Shatner in Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, where they establish at the very beginning that he had a nervous breakdown and he just got out of a mental hospital. And so when he sees this fantastical thing in the airplane, nobody believes him. But not because they're a-holes. It's because they established that he is an unreliable witness early, early on. And in that one, Shatner has his wife. And it's most damning to him when his wife doesn't believe. There's this great moment in that where he realizes that he's being patronized. Like the captain of the plane says... He comes over and he says, oh, I saw it too. You know, sometimes you see things up here, but we don't want to alarm the rest of the passengers. And Shatner realizes that he's, you know, that they are treating him like a crazy person, buying into his delusion so that he doesn't go nuts. And he says, fine, I'll sit here and I won't say another word. 
The plane can crash. For all I care, I won't say another word. It's a really wonderful moment in that. I mean, it's a wonderful episode. It is up there with the greatest of all the Twilight Zone episodes. And it's it's the most famous episode, I would say. And uh, this had a very similar connective tissue in it, in that because she was struck, everybody has the excuse of dismissing what she had to say. Although there are people that saw Mrs. Foy and they don't acknowledge it. And so something else has to be going on. That's the fun of the mystery in The Lady Vanishes is, okay, okay, they establish that this man who says, oh, no, no, I never saw anybody is lying because he's a judge. Uh, no, he's a, he's a lawyer and he's cheating on his wife with another lady in this compartment. And if he comes forth as a witness, an eyewitness, it will come to light that he is having this affair. And so, you know, there's a reason for him to be lying. There's also these two British they're the comic relief. They're the buffoonish characters that all they care about is cricket. They were sleeping in the same bed, which I found quaint, I suppose. Although I, quaint, but like with no pants on, too, which is just, again, you know, I, it made me think of, of the movie, you know, of a modern retelling of it. But you don't get much more modern than two men in the same bed without pants on. And they uh, are just, I guess they're amusing characters. They're supposed to be funny. And so we dismiss that they don't want to get involved. I also, I guess there is a Britishness of, you know, we don't stick our noses in the affairs of others. There's a line about, you know, we don't climb the fence except to perch ourselves directly on it, on top of the fence, on neither side of the fence. Anyhow, the, the plot thickens and they discover that there is a conspiracy going on and that there is more than one person on the train that is involved in this. And there was a Mrs. Foy. There is direct evidence that there was a Mrs. Foy, but that evidence is being eliminated, thrown away, hidden. The, the two main characters, you know, they're, they are together, but there's not much chance for romance. And and if it were me making the film today, I would definitely turn up the sexual tension because there, the train is a super claustrophobic enclosed space and people are very, very close together. There's no social distancing involved. And I also found the, the main female character very attractive. And so maybe that was on my mind of what would you do if there was an obviously deranged but lovely British woman on this train? Well, I think I've said enough about The Lady Vanishes. I was going to go all the way to the end of the movie because there, there, there was a pretty, I, I'm not going to say spectacular, but it's close to spectacular sequence with the train and a shootout and glass breaking and climbing on top of the train, going out the window and coming in through another window. And there was a very comical fight scene where they have about three feet in which to fight two men. And they're basically just rolling around, choking each other. And at one point, our hero asks the woman, you know, to help out. And she kicks the guy that, 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 that our hero is, is fighting with in the butt. And then they sort of swing around and she kicks again and kicks our hero in the butt. And it just, it, it was really dumb, but in a super charming way. And I thought, you know, this could totally work in uh, a remake as well, this physical humor. And then just, yeah, the, the idea of, I, the tongue was firmly in cheek, even though there is an element of danger and suspense going on. There are spies and plots and assassination and, and there's poisoning. And there's a, a wonderful villain mon monologue where he explains, because I have won, I'm gonna tell you what's going on. But it doesn't strike me as ham-fisted. It's just, I guess maybe we've seen it done badly so many times 
that we are weary of that kind of plot device. But when done well, it still totally works. It reminds me of in Star Trek, The Undiscovered Country. So Kirk and, and Bones have been isolated and the bad guy shows up to assassinate them. And Kirk says, no, what? I, that's a second Shatner reference. What's going on? What? Tell me what is happening. And the villain says, well, I guess since I'm going to kill you anyway, I might as well tell you. And he starts to talk and then Kirk and Bones are rescued. And Kirk is furious that Spock rescued him. You know, he's like, Spock, couldn't you have waited another 30 seconds? Uh, it just, yeah, when it's well done, it's well done. And when it's not well done, you notice that and you wonder, well, why on earth would a villain do this? Anyhow, I'm sorry. It, it made me, okay, when, when Marshall and I were going to sit down and do rope, he wasn't ready to watch it. He was renting them from Netflix and I was getting them from the library. And so I watched Vertigo instead. And Vertigo was so great, I called up Marshall and said, we have to do an episode about this. Can we, could, do you have Vertigo? I, I, I believe his library also had Vertigo. And so we did an episode about that. And then Marshall had to send Vertigo back and then wait for Rope to get there. So I watched Rear Window and I felt the same way with Rear Window. I was like, oh my gosh, this movie is perfect except for that one shot at the end of the movie. We have to do an episode about this. Maybe we will do like a Hitchcock month every year where we do two Hitchcock movies or something like that. But I don't know that we'll ever get to Lady Vanishes. I just, I wished that I could call Marshall up and say, rent Lady Vanishes and we will do an episode about it because wow, it was just magical. It was back when Hitch was still working in British film, but it was the culmination of everything that he had learned in silent film and then in his early talkies. And I believe Lady Vanishes was the last British film that he did and then he came to America where suddenly he had a budget and he had stars to work with. But I, I could be wrong. I know 39 Steps was a big hit here in America that contributed to Hitchcock's coming to America and uh, becoming the master of suspense here. The, the, so I was talking about being inspired. I, I would like to write a story. And of course, it's, it's not going to be a remake of Lady Vanishes, but something like that where there are strangers and there is a young woman and me, a me parallel character who, not, who takes notice of the young woman. And I thought what would be neat is if this guy had followed her. Like he had deliberately missed his train because he saw her and overheard her saying she's going to be on the next train because that's a creepy stalkery thing that I would do. I'm one of those, ladies and gentlemen. And so he gets on the same train as her and then later that will come out that he deliberately missed his train so that he could stalk her, essentially, gawk at her across the dining car and when she finds that out, she's just like, oh, I can't trust this guy either. Oh, no. I find that really interesting because it puts an obstacle between these characters. And I think it's a natural obstacle. I remember I used to drive, when I would get off work, I used to drive by the work of a girl that I was interested in because they were in the same town, like a half a mile apart. And so, you know... I, I would drive past her work just in case she was there or I could see her car and know that she was there and I guess she saw me do it. And maybe she saw me do it more than once because she said, hey, you, you can't do that because it makes you look like some kind of creep. But anyhow, it's just a, I feel like it's a natural obstacle in keeping these two characters apart. So I just went into Walgreens. This is the first time wearing that mask that my mom made me and... Boy, I felt ridiculous wearing it. I felt like I should go up to the register and say, this is a stick up, give me all your money. I don't know if you could understand what I was saying. Oh, I look weird, it squished my nose down. You know, my already busted nose. Looks like it's been freshly busted. 
But my mom had basically blackmailed me into wearing it. She said, you know, this isn't for you. This is for me. So that, you know, you don't get me infected. And you can only wear it once and then it has to be washed. And in retrospect, it won't be ridiculous. But at the time, it was a little bit embarrassing. And there were other people with masks in there. Thank goodness. Because, you know, if you're the only one, then maybe you do feel a little bit self-conscious. And I shouldn't be self-conscious because, you know, I've been an actor and worn makeup and stuff and you walk in somewhere and people give you a funny look. I remember after I worked on this zombie movie, I went into Walmart with the zombie makeup on and everybody looked at me and I think I said Happy Halloween to a couple of people just for fun. But this was different and this is much more serious. I, I... So Rish here from the future it's it's months later and everybody wears masks uh you have to just today the day that i'm recording this walmart all the walmarts in america announced that you have to have a mask on to come into walmart there was a guy and he was standing out in the sun with a mask on by the door telling people oh hey sorry you have to have a mask And I thought about that guy. A, he was standing out in the sun in summertime. And then two, I I just think about all the people that he must have run into that were, you know, the the anti-maxers, if that's a name. You know, the, the, the abuse that that poor guy has to get. Anyway, when I recorded that little bit about the very first time I wore a mask... I didn't give you the coda. I didn't know at the time what the problem was, but I I came back and talked to my mom and and I said, I wore the mask when I went to Walgreens and it was awful. I don't know if you can see it, but I had this big red mark across the bridge of my nose and it just, it hurt. It was like a face hugger on my face the whole time. And she's like, well, I don't, it shouldn't hurt. I've got elastics for the ears here. Let me look at it. And she looked at it and she said, oh, you're wearing your nephew's mask. I made this for the nine-year-old. That was your problem. And I got to say, in all the dozens of times I've worn a mask since then, it's never been as bad as it was that very first time. Mostly because I've been wearing a mask intended for adults. But on with the countdown. Anyhow, I, I was talking about My Lady Vanishes, right? So I like the idea that this young man, the, the, the me character, the me equivalent, is already really interested in this girl. And so he instantly takes her side when she says something. You know, people are out to kill me. I saw a dead body. I saw a ghost. There was an alien spacecraft, etc., etc. Whatever it is that is unbelievable... He is the only one that's just like, oh, well, if you say you saw it, then you're probably telling the truth because I am attracted to you. And then it comes out in just a few minutes that she is not to be trusted, that she has some mental compromise, that she has cried wolf before or that she was in a sanitarium or that she was addicted to painkillers or diet pills or crack, you know, something like that. And so he has to question whether uh, he can trust her or not, whether, whether or not she is to be believed. And, you know, when, when you get to that point, you have to wonder what, what is more likely that all of these people are lying Or that she's a pretty girl who has beguiled me into taking her side, but she's also ill. I like that. I like the idea. And then the beauty of a scene like that would be when she realizes what is going through his head. And she realizes, oh, this guy didn't know that I was in an institution. Or didn't know that I insisted that I saw my mother kill my father or my father kill my mother or whatever. And now he knows 
and he wants to get as far away from me as possible. I like that because it just puts her in this position of, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't believe me either, except for I know what I saw. And then, like I said, the truth coming out that he, you know, had a different, heck, what if he's just changed his plans altogether because he's infatuated with this girl and she's just like, oh, okay, well, this guy who pretends to be on my side at best has ulterior motives and at worst is part of the conspiracy. Because which is more likely that he's a decent guy who decided to take my word for it and help me get to the bottom of this mystery or that, you know, he has been put here deliberately to watch me, to make sure that I don't find out too much. I, I, that stuff is really solid. That's really good. I don't, I've, I've not written a lot of mysteries and I understand that it takes a certain talent and it takes a certain kind of mind to write these because do you come up with the solution first and then you work backward? Or do you ask the question and then you spend a good long time trying to figure out the solution? And then of course you can put the clues in later. I, I don't know. Boy, I feel like we could come back to this because it's, it's an interesting subject. I would really like to write it. Maybe today? So I meant Maybe to come today? back to it when I wrote something and do a follow-up, I thought it would be interesting to say, okay, here's what I got, and here's what the story is called. And I never did anything on it. Uh, it's one of those I've deliberately wasted your time episodes. But you never know. You never know when you'll go back to an idea that you had. Now we're going to cut to May. That last one was April. And here is something that I recorded in May uh, in, in a very similar situation where it wasn't quite enough for its own episode, but I never followed up. And then this one is uh, what we're going to call Midlife Crisis on Infinite Earths. No, on One Earth. On Earth. Oh, so I finally finished watching Star Trek Picard uh, with my cousin. We took a, <laughs> what, six week break in between the episodes and we just finished it today. And I'm, I'm not 100% pleased with the way it ended. And, and I understand also that there's a going to be a second season, so... It didn't really end, although I got the impression that it was some. It was supposed to only be this season. I I don't know, but w one of the themes to the show was that life is finite. That even somebody as great as Captain Picard is eventually going to get old and in this show's case, feeble and, 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 and feel useless. But the, it's, it's the fact that life is finite is what makes life precious. And this is an attitude that I've had for a while where we talk about vampire stories or talk about immortals and the fact that we are that we have an expiration date, all of us, is one of the things that makes life worth experiencing. Because one day it's going to end. They said it in, I think, the second to last episode. They said that it makes friendship, health, love all the more powerful because you know that it doesn't last. I, I'm not phrasing it exactly great, but it, it, it made me think of it. I, I mean, I, I, so 2020, besides being the plague year, has been my midlife crisis year. Thinking about where I have been, what little 
I have accomplished and that soon, or if I'm lucky, soon-ish, it's all going to be over. And it, it frightened me because I feel like I haven't lived, I haven't experienced, I haven't gotten to suck the marrow out of life. And that is scary. When you hear the clock ticking and you think, oh, this is all going to end. How do I want to make use of the time that I have? And Big Anklevich, in for his midlife crisis, he decided that he would write every single day. Well, he decided that he would write 300,000 words in this year of his life, from birthday to birthday. And that to me is an unfathomable amount of words, of writing, of creation. And he's doing it. At the point that I'm recording this, he's halfway there. Uh, he's actually going to finish early, which uh, is, that's my domain, baby. And for me, this midlife crisis was like, okay, I will see your writing every day and I will raise you exercise every single day, going somewhere every single week. So I've been doing a hike every Sunday I go to, on a hike. And this past weekend, I went on Friday and Sunday. So let's see the exercise, the writing, been recording myself singing whenever I go to the storage unit. Although there have been a couple of times that I've gone to the storage unit and not saying anything because sometimes when I go on my hikes, I will sing. And I, I can see you maybe saying, well, the writing is, you know, exercising your mind and the jogging the sit-ups, the push-ups are exercising your body, but singing, maybe that's just, it's not like the others, but it's part of the midlife crisis of trying to embrace life. And one of the things that, I mean, I, I, I have many flaws as a human being, but one of them is always being timid and introverted, and that has not gone away at all. And it sucks during this lockdown the times when people were quarantined, the introverts were suddenly at the forefront. And it's like, yeah, this is how I live my life anyway. But I never felt proud of that because just this last weekend, a bunch of my mom's family came over. We all got together. We ate together, and as soon as my food was done, I wanted to get out of there and be by myself. And that's not cool. That's a shame. It is a flaw in my character that I am as loath as I am to be in my own company. That's where I'm most comfortable. Taking a look at myself, both metaphorically and literally, has been difficult during this stretch. I've never liked to see myself. I just don't like what I see. I don't like my face. I don't like, you know, that I've gotten fat and I've never been muscular. And so recording myself singing a song and then putting it out there is a way to try to get accustomed to that face, to say, this is who I am. Instead of just doing voice work, which is what I have thrived with these past few years, I'm putting my face out there as well. And that's really, really hard. The exercise that I've been doing has had a transformative effect on my body but I'm never going to have a six pack. I'm never going to have great big Schwarzeneggerian arms. I've lost some weight and I've 
toned a little bit, but I'm never going to look at myself in the mirror and be like, yeah, there you go, baby. I see these young people, and they don't all have to be young, but it's mostly young people on Instagram, and they revel in their youth and the beauty of their bodies, you know, how good a shape they are and all that. And I, I, that's never been me. I, I don't, I think I've probably always disdained people that, you know, want to take their shirt off so that other people can see. But in the month of May, I've done sit-ups every single day. And if I could just keep it going and maybe double the amount of sit-ups that I do in June, that would take care of a lot of that, really. Okay, but and, and, and I want to talk about the writing there. Um, so I'm, I'm not happy with my real life. I'm not happy with my loneliness. I'm not happy with my, it's not bisexuality, it's, but it's, it's something like that. It's my bipolarism. I'm a disappointment to myself, but as a writer, I can experience all sorts of things that in real life I don't experience. So I've, I've been trying to stretch as a writer as well. I wrote this story that it was one of my goals to put this story out in May and I haven't even touched it in the whole month of May called Three Time Visitor and it's told not through the eyes of a loser like most of my stories but through a really handsome charming guy it's the story that was supposed to be sexy the, the one that I pitched as a guy gets it on with a ghost I tried doing a story that was funny that sat at the bed and breakfast and right now I'm I don't know what I'm doing I'm basically writing a novel that takes place in the bed and breakfast but it was not meant to be a novel it was just I had three ideas for short stories and I'm doing all three of them at the same time and it makes for a novel I guess and in that I wanted to explore romance a little bit and just a couple of days ago, I came up with this idea for a Laura and the Witch story about romance, about Laura Deming's first foray into romance. And so it takes place not when she's 11, but like five years later. So it's a teenage Laura. And I started the story today with having Laura get her heart broken. Uh, she's 15. She hooks up with some guy. The guy is not all that interested in her. And then Laura doesn't handle that well. And of course, of course, we've all been there, right? Or, or not. But the, the bulk of the story is supposed to be picking up a year later when she meets this guy and things click and things work. How does that feel and how great is that? But at the same time, can Laura believe that this is real because for the last five years she has been living in a world where magic exists and her foster mother for lack of a better term her guardian is a witch who basically is powerful enough to bend people to her will and so the fun of the story will be Lara starting to be happy and then being afraid to be happy because what if this isn't real? What if this is a spell that old widow Holcomb cast on this boy? I had Laura cast this love spell on two students in her class in the very first story that I wrote, which was like a good neighbor. I, I, I liked that just the fun of it, you know, a consequence free spell just to see what would happen kind of thing. But Lara sees that it's not consequence free and she decides not to do that again. And I, I'm going to refer back to that in this story. And I thought it would be really neat if she could either call or, you know, go back to the town 
where Like a Good Neighbor took place and see that the residual effects of this spell that she cast when she was 11 years old still linger. This kid that she cast the spell on, he was a douche. He was like weighed something in her school and she cast this spells that he would fall in love with this girl, Holly, I believe. And I just love the idea that all these years later, he still carries a torch for Holly. And he says to Lara, sometimes I wonder if I'll ever love anybody that way again. And that should just be horrifying to 16-year-old Lara to hear that. I love it. Oh my gosh. I have fallen in love a few times in my life. And there have been times when it's, you know, just, oh, I'm attracted to so-and-so. But then there are times when it becomes almost like this smothering biological need where you're just really shocked at the profundity of what you feel. Now, I haven't felt that a lot. Part of me says, thank God I haven't felt that a lot. But another part of me says, really? You wouldn't want to feel that way all the time? And it's a whole podcast's worth answering that question. But the simple answer is to feel that in an unrequited way, of course I would never want to feel that all the time. But yeah, if it went both ways, well, that's what true love is, isn't it? That's the happy ending that we all long for, isn't it? And so the last time that I, I fell in love, I was, again, shocked by how powerful it was. I, I reeled from it. It had been so long, and I just, I couldn't stop thinking about her to the point where I was just like, this is not normal. This is not natural. I don't, I mean, this feels like mental illness. It was scary. But at the same time, it was so exhilarating. And it was humbling and energizing to realize I could still feel like this. You know, we think about adolescent infatuation, you know, a teen crush and all that stuff as being, you know, just this crazy hormonal thing that you outgrow. But me, as a middle-aged guy, feeling it again, you know, like I said, it's both exhilarating and super daunting to know that I'm still capable of that. And look, that's not going to work out in real life. I mean, I don't even need to go into it. It's just, it's a, it, there's obviously a reason I wouldn't want to feel that way all the time. But I can tap into that for these stories, for writing. And I, I really like the idea of Lara falling for this guy and he seems to fall for her. But is it real? Is it true? Is it the witch's spell? And how could you ever know for sure? And so I'm excited to write this story and to explore that. The thing is, I don't know how good a writer I am. I don't know if I can adequately convey what I want to convey, but that's part of art. You may be a wonderful sculptor or painter, but can you get the image on the canvas that's in your head, the image from the clay that's in your head. And that's what I want to do with this story and with the, the, this period in my life of upheaval of, like I said, you know, feeling things that I, I hadn't felt in a long, long time. Spoiler alert, you can't be in love at this level and maintain it it always has to fade or transform into something else, uh, evolve into something else. The way that you love someone when you first meet them or 
marry them. Uh, it, it changes with time. You change with time. I think it's, it's again, it's going back to the Picard part of this conversation, it's what makes that precious is it, it is not permanent. It is elusive. It will eventually get away from you or, you know, become something else. And so if I can write some things that are good, that are powerful, and that are true, then it's a way of taking advantage of this moment. You know, it is just as important as the exercise in, I don't know, staving off the inevitable in making good use of the time that I have left. That's just my opinion. (laughs) Time will tell. Ah, creative comedy. 3.0 3.0 I barely knew you. I remember how your hair would shine in the moonlight. How the hint of your smile would make my stomach start up a spin cycle. And how free you were. Free to listen to, download, and share. But you couldn't be tied down. Couldn't be claimed as somebody's property couldn't be charged for, couldn't be altered. I never knew what a good thing I had in you. Something so attributable. Something with no derivatives. Something to share and share alike. I never knew that good thing until it was done. Like this podcast. So I was recommended to do this old Mad Madden, Madonna song. Mad, uh, you know what her name is. Come on. Yes, suppose I do. Wouldn't it be wonderful if I didn't know her name? I don't know. This was my favorite song when I was 10 years old. Here's an idea. Let's have fake Arnold come in halfway through the song and ruin it. Ah, with an honor. Halfway. Some boys kiss me. Some boys hug me. And I think they're okay. But if they don't give me proper credit, well, I just walk away. Well, they can beg and they can plead, but they can't see the lie. That's right. What? Because the boy with the cold hard cash is always Mr. Right. Because we are living in a material world and I am a material gal. You know that we are living in a material world and I am a material girl. Can I come in now? No, it's not quite half yet. Some boys romance, some boys slow dance, that's all right with me. If they can't raise my interest, then I have to let them be. And some boys try, and some boys lie, but I don't let them play. No way! Only boys that save their pennies make my rainy day. Cause we are living in a material world And I am a material girl You know that we are living in a material world And I am a material girl Go ahead! Living in a material world And I am a material girl You know that we are living in a material world And I am a material girl Thank you! Yes, that was wonderful. You totally ruined the song. Wait, wasn't that what I was supposed to do? Living in the material world. Material in the material world. Living in the material world. Material. Living in the material world. 
boys may come and boys may go and that's all right you see experience has made me rich and now they're after me cause everybody's living in a material world and i am a material girl you know that we are living in a material world and i am a material girl Living in a material world And I am a material girl You know that we are living In a material girl world And I am a material girl The lyrics are in front of you, Fake Sean. Yes. I'm material I'm material I'm material a material world in the material world Material in the material world Living in the material world Material in the material world It starts to not sound like a real word in the material world Material in the material world It sounds like nonsense you understand? In a material world Material in the material world Ah, you may have to retire for a while, fake Arnold. How come? Ah. It starts out with kind of an absurd scene they're at some kind of inn, uh, like a Bavarian place. It's up somewhere. And, uh, do they ever say the country? I don't know that they do. But multiple languages are spoken. You hear Italian. Uh, you hear German. You hear, I want to say Hungarian, but I, I wouldn't know Hungarian from a kind of dragon in the Harry Potter books. And we meet this woman who, she's a young woman. She's got some friends. I, I guess we never see the friends again, but... Uh, she has this sort of meet cute with a British musician. I I don't know. Do I have to explain it? Let, yeah, let, let's eliminate all that stuff. Okay.